I can't tell you, it is so good to be back here. This is one of my favourite churches and I love it, I love it, I love it. I, lo I love your enthusiasm. And um, um, if you'd like to take a seat, I, <clears throat> I, and I, whilst I love the church, I, I don't want to be negative, but I do need to be honest. Um, I've had a, a real disappointment since I came here. I came with my four interns from the UK and the four of them have all been given gift bags with chocolates in them. But I have been told by this human being here that I don't get any chocolates because it's not... Well, you haven't said why. It's not good for me. There are some things that need to change in this church. <laughs> no, seriously, it is an absolute joy uh, to be back here again. And uh, uh, we have had uh, quite a time uh, over the last few years. Uh, there's, it's been a struggle, but do you know what I'm picking up? Uh, the, the, the Lord is refining His church. He uses these things. He uses these things and, and he's causing uh, his, his, his people to come back to their first love, to our first love. And in the UK, uh, although we've, we've, we've seen some folk have fallen off the edge uh, and haven't yet come back, we've seen a whole bunch of people, like I don't remember, give their lives to Christ for the first time. Something is stirring. It really is stirring. And uh, we, we just need to pursue him with everything we have. It's pursuing him. Uh, he is still the Lord. He is still the Lord. And uh, we look to him. We look to his grace. Well, I'm going to launch um, straight in and uh, say that I have been um, a pastor since the days of Noah. Uh, I, I am... I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but in March, I'm going to be 65. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how? That's impossible. And I know, I know, it's, 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 it's a gift from God and oil of ule. Uh, but it's a combination of the two. How do I look so young? But I've, I've been a pastor forever. And as a pastor... When I started off, we planted our church 30 years ago. Uh, and I started going to pastor's conferences because that's what you do when you're a pastor. And I realized that the pastor's conferences I went to, they all followed the same formula. At some stage, they'd bring on the keynote speaker who was the pastor, uh, a successful pastor of a very large successful church. And he would stand there and he would say something like this. Two years ago, there were 43 in our church. Now, there are 4.2 million. And we have satellite congregations on Mars and Venus. And our budget is bigger than the state of Texas. You too 
could have a church as large and successful as mine if you follow these three principles, these four practices, these five ways. And I would write notes on everything. And I'd go back to my little church and I would change everything so we could be a big, successful church. And then the next year I'd go back to another pastor's conference and they'd bring on another successful pastor of a huge church and he would say the same stuff but it would be three different principles four different practices five different ways and I would write it down and I would go back and I would change everything after a few years when my church knew I was going to a pastor's conference they would be praying for protection for the church they would be praying that I wouldn't come back and turn everything around again and and I, I realised that, that that's not it. That's not it, doing it like that. And then I remember there was, um, there was one pastor's conference and a very successful church leader uh, who, who'd achieved a lot. He said, he said, he actually said this. He said, if you want to grow a big church, then what you've got to do is you've got to go out and look for the best of the best and when you see the best of the best, you spend whatever you need to and you buy the best of the best to be on your staff. And you, you get the best people, the, 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 the most brilliant people, and that's how you grow a successful church. And I know what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, as a pastor, don't be insecure. You know, find people that can do things better than you. I understand that. But when he said that, I thought, that's the problem in my church. I don't have the best of the best. I have a bunch of morons on my staff. And then I thought, I need to find the best of the best and buy them. And I thought, but I haven't got the money to buy them. And then I suddenly thought, poor Jesus. He never got to go to pastor's conferences. He never heard that. He never had anyone to advise him to go and employ the best of the best. And in those days, when the top rabbis, when they were looking for new disciples, they would go to the top rabbinical universities of the time. They'd go to the Yale and the Harvard, the Oxford, the Cambridge, the University of Auckland. They would go... <laughs> to the top rabbinical universities and they would look for the best of the best and they would point and they would say, you, follow me. You, follow me. You, follow me. All the best rabbis did that except one. Rabbi Jesus didn't go to those places. He went to the Sea of Galilee and he picked a bunch of morons. He picked broken people. Just think about it. There was Peter. Whenever he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. He could never quite get it right. You know, everyone else will leave you, but I won't. Oh no, I'll stick. Where's he gone? You know, um, and he was always, he was always getting it wrong. There was Simon who was a zealot. Do you know what zealots were? They were freedom fighters. They fought against the occupying Romans for freedom for Israel. In other words, he was a terrorist. <laughs> then there was Matthew. 
who was a tax collector. That doesn't mean he worked for the government. He worked for the occupying Roman powers against his own people. He was a traitor. Can you imagine the conversation between the freedom fighter terrorist and the traitor late at night after Jesus went to bed? Then there was, then there was Thomas who couldn't believe a word anyone ever said. The manic depressive of the group. Oh, it's all gone wrong again. Oh, we may as well all go and die with him. Oh, no, it'll never work. I mean, it's just, oh, it's not going to work. Like, there's one in every church, isn't there? They drain the flipping life out of you. You're about, don't they? They're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, it's all, no. We're going to do that. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, no. And, and you know, I'm not, not going to believe he rose from not unless I put my, no. I mean, for goodness sakes. Then, then there was um, John and his brother James. And I just really want to talk about them this evening. I want to talk about John. Do you know John and his brother James, they had a nickname, Sons of Thunder. And they weren't called Sons of Thunder because they had digestive problems. <laughs> they were called Sons of Thunder almost certainly because they had bad tempers. They were the bad-tempered ones. They were. And, and, and not only were they bad-tempered ones, but I just want to look at three other aspects of John's character. The first one you can find in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus has just been telling the disciples that he's going to die a horrific death on the cross and then rise from the dead. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And I wonder if in Jesus' humanity, he might have thought for a moment, oh, bless their little cotton socks. They're going to ask me not to die on the cross because they love me so much. <laughs> they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. You know, it was like, you know, after you've died that horrific death on the cross and you've been crucified and it's all been horrible and you rise from the dead, well, can we sit on your right and your left? John and his brother James not only had bad tempers, but they were selfishly ambitious. It was all about them. And when the other disciples found out, there was a big row. Selfish ambition always causes division in the church. Always causes division. So... They were selfishly ambitious. Then they were vengefully violent. Just listen to this in Luke uh, chapter 9. Um, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, just, just picture this. There's, uh, don't, don't you sometimes wish the book was a DVD? When it says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. I'd love to know what he said, but we're not told. There's a reason for that. <laughs> and and, and there's, there's James and John. Uh, the, the Samaritan village wouldn't give them a cup of tea and some sandwiches. And they say, Lord, 
let's call down fire from heaven and burn them all up. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, it doesn't say what he said, but I have had special revelation (laughs) that others have not received. I suspect it was something like this. Boys, I knew you weren't listening during the Sermon on the Mount. You were on Instagram, weren't you? You weren't listening when I said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. If someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. I didn't come, guys, to burn Samaritan villages. I came so that Samaritan villages wouldn't have to be burnt. John and his brother James, the bad-tempered ones, were selfishly ambitious and vengefully violent. And finally, this is the one that belongs to John all on his own. Wait till I say it and then... Jesus has just risen from the dead. This is the central moment in human history. The whole of scripture has been leading up to this moment. And listen to how John describes it in his book, John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which he's talking about himself there. You know, I I mean, talk about, I'm I'm the one he loves, don't you know? Yes. Um, uh, And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, i.e. me, John, started running for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Guys, this is the central moment of human history. They've just discovered that Jesus has broken the power of death. He has risen from the dead. And John gets to describe this moment that the whole of human history has been leading to. And he felt it absolutely vital. The future generations should know that he was a faster runner than Peter. (laughs) Jesus has just risen from the dead. Who cares who did the 100 metres faster? And, and, And if you go to the very last verse... It it, it gets more ridiculous. John finishes his book by saying this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So John, you're saying that there were things that Jesus said and did that you didn't have room to put on the record And we will now never know certain things that Jesus said and did, but you still felt it vital that we should know that you could do the 100 metres faster than Peter. John was bad-tempered. He was 
vengefully violent. He was selfishly ambitious and he was excessively competitive. Would you want him in your church? I wouldn't want him in my church. <laughs> could, could a steward just escort that lady? <laughs> I, I would, I can't say it seriously. I wouldn't have him in my church. Hear this, folks. Jesus chose him. He chose him. He said, you, you, the bad-tempered one, the, uh, the excessively competitive one, the vengefully violent one, the, you, John, follow me, and I'm going to be committed to you, and I'm going to invest in you and your crazy friends. I'm going to invest in you, and you are going to change the world. There's a story I love. In 1955, there was a lady who lived in Kansas um, called Elizabeth Henson. And she was clearing out her, her stuff. She had too many clothes and she was time to throw some out. And as she was clearing out her stuff, she came across a horrible old green coat that was horrible velvet, it was a very tacky colour, and it was threadbare. And she thought, why have I kept this for so long? This is useless, this is hopeless. I'm going to throw it out. And as she went to throw it out, her son saw her. And he said, if you're throwing that out, Mum, can I have it? And she said, what on earth would you want to do with this? This is useless, this is worthless, this is hopeless. And he said, I want it. So she gave it to him. He took it to his room, he cut it up, he sewed it back together again. He took a table tennis ball and cut it in half and sewed the two ends of the table tennis ball, the two halves, onto that old green coat. Do you know that that old green coat, I promise you this is true, won an Oscar for a film it made. It had a hit record that went around the world. That useless, worthless green coat ended up having a TV series that lasted for years and years and years. And that old green coat ended up having a celebrity love affair with the most beautiful pig on the planet. In the hands of Elizabeth Henson's son, Jim, that old green coat became Kermit the Frog. True story, true story. And it became Kermit the Frog because Jim could see beyond what it seemed and could see what it would become. And that's how Jesus deals with you and me. He sees what we can be in his hands. He sees what he can make us and remake us. And he does it. And that's what Jesus did with Peter, with James, with John, with Thomas, with Simon, with Matthew and with all the others. And that's what he does today. 
just just a, with, with John. When he first met Jesus, he was known as a son of thunder. After three years with Jesus, he gave himself a new label. He gave himself a new title, the beloved disciple, the one he loves. That's what being with Jesus does. He changes us from the inside out. And as I begin uh, to come into land, I just want to mention... Some of you have been here when I've been here before, haven't you? <laughs> as, I begin to, as I begin to end my talk, um, I just want to mention Thomas, and I love this, and I didn't see this until a few months ago. Do you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, on that day, on the day he rose from the dead, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And then he appeared to all the other disciples except Thomas, who wasn't there at the time. He came into a locked room and he appeared to them. And then Thomas came afterwards and they said, he's risen from the dead. And Tom said, no, he hasn't. And they said, he has, we've seen him. And, he, and Tom said, listen, I studied psychology at university. You have had a mass delusion. I've, I've seen what happens. You all think you've seen it. He's not, if he has, where is he? Where is he? Is he here? No. Is he under the table? No. Is he? Where is he? In the wardrobe? No. Oh, where is he? And then the next day, they gathered together on the Monday, and Tom said, where is he? We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, it took Jesus a week before he met up with Thomas. Why did Jesus wait, wait a week? On the day he rose from the dead, he, 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 he appeared to Mary Magdalene and then all the other disciples. And then can you imagine Thomas? It gets to Wednesday. Have we seen Jesus yet? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. Yes, yes, really risen he is, isn't he? Oh, yes, oh, yes. <laughs> and then Friday. By Friday, I think some of the disciples were starting to think, did we imagine it? Did we imagine it? A whole week, Tom was telling them that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And then one week later, he appears and he says, hello, Tom. And then Tom had just said, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger in his hands where the marks are and my hand in his side. And Jesus says, come here, Thomas, come here. Go on then, go on then. Do you know what Thomas does? He falls to the ground and he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus gave Tom a whole week to get out all his doubts, all his negativity, all his no, he hasn't, oh no, it's all gone wrong. And then after a week, he appears to him, and here's the amazing thing. He gives the honor, the honor of being the first human being in history who says to Jesus, you are God, to doubting Thomas. 
my Lord and my God. He's the first person to call him God. That is called grace. That is called the grace of God. And you know, God takes us in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our vulnerability, and he begins to work on us. And he doesn't, you know, he sometimes chooses the best of the best, but he doesn't choose them because they're the best of the best. And then he chooses broken people like me and like you. And he says, I want you to trust me. I want you to learn to receive my love. And I want you to lean on me because I want you to learn the lesson that my power is made perfect in your weakness. And here's the truth. God's power is not made perfect in our strength. And the reason is this, because in our strength, we rely on our strength. But when we're weak, when we're broken, when we're vulnerable, when we have nothing, we have nothing else to rely on except Him, except Him. And when we rely on Him, that's when the miracles happen. And that's why I love, I love that this church puts prayer at the top of its agenda because I don't know about you, but I'll be really honest. I can think I'm quite good at praying until I start praying. Anyone been there? And it's like, am I the only one that's fallen asleep praying? Am I? I am, aren't I? Ah. But you know what? There, there, was, there was a few times when I, I just I was be praying and I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up like, you, are you even a Christian? Are you even saved? You're talking to Jesus. You're talking to God and you fall asleep. What sort of Christian are you? You fall asleep while you're praying. You, God must be so angry. God must be so cross with you. And I said that to someone, to a friend of mine. And my friend said, I'm a dad. And there are times when I hold my little boy in my arms and I'm talking to him and he's talking to me and I love our conversation. And then after a while I look down and he's asleep. And I don't think, you... You fell asleep in the middle of a conversation with your father. Right, you are grounded. I don't care that you're two. You are not going to any parties for a week. He doesn't think that. He thinks, I love it. I love it that my little boy has fallen asleep in my arms. In my arms. He's a father. He's a father. He's a parent and he takes us as we are. Do you know a phrase that I love, that I keep repeating to myself is, you know, the one that knows me the best loves me the most. And that's the truth. I'm safe in him. He knows me the best and he loves me the most. I finish with three minutes, 56 seconds to go. <laughs> I'm going to finish on time. I'm going to finish on time. I am, I am. As long as you don't do a giggle. Um, 
with this story that means the world to me. A friend of mine, who's actually a Kiwi called Ants, a New Zealander called Ants, um, he said to me, he loves, he was always talking about, you know, have you noticed there are some parents, they're just so boring, all they do is talk about their kids all the time, and you're thinking, somebody give me a gun to shoot myself. You know, but you don't say that, of course. Oh, you want to talk about, oh, you, you know. Well, anyway, Ants is one of those parents. And he, he said to me, uh, that his little girl, when she, was, when she was little, about five, six years old, her favourite toy was a china doll, a porcelain doll. And which is a strange thing to have as a favourite toy, because, you know, most little girls, they have dolls that cry and wee, and you squeeze them and they laugh and things like that. But hers was a, a porcelain doll. And they kept the doll on the mantelpiece. And once a day, before she went to bed, they'd take the doll from the mantelpiece and she would stroke the doll and she would kiss the doll and she would talk to the doll. And then they put the doll back on the mantelpiece for safety and she would go to bed. Well, one day, father and daughter were having a pillow fight. And it got a little bit competitive. And it went from room to room. And they ended up in the front room where the doll was on the mantelpiece. And aunt's daughter managed to get under his defences and she gave him an uppercut with her pillow. And he got cross. And he thought, I am not allowing a five-year-old girl to beat me in a pillow fight. So he thought, right, I'm going to end this. I'm going to give her such a, a hit with my pillow. I will send her into orbit. And this will end it. And he pulled his pillow right back in order to get a good swing. But he pulled it too far back. And the pillow hit the doll. And the doll fell down. And Ant said to me, the next moment it was like, it, I remember it like it was slow motion. Father and daughter went, no. <laughs> but they couldn't catch the doll. She fell down she, and smashed into a hundred pieces. And they stood there. And Ant's little girl looked at him. And she said, Daddy, you've killed my dolly. You've killed my dolly. And, and Aunt said, um, I, I, I said to her, darling, darling, I've got a credit card. I'll buy you another one. And she said to him, but daddy, I don't want another one. I only want this one. And so he picked up the pieces and he took them to his study. And, uh, and he went and bought super glue. And he spent the whole of the next day putting the pieces back together again. Well... He used all the pieces, but not necessarily in the right order. And when he finished, the doll looked like this. And he took the doll to his little girl and he said, Darling, this is your dolly. I'm so, so sorry. I promise I'll buy you another one. And his little girl said to him, But Daddy, I've already told you, I don't want another one. I only want this one. And he said, but darling, this one's broken. She looked at her father and she said, just because she's broken doesn't mean I can't love her. That's the message I leave you with tonight. Those of you that feel you're broken, just because you're broken doesn't mean he can't love you. He can't use you. He can't heal you. 
he can't turn things around. He did it for John. He did it for Peter. He did it for Thomas. God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Amen.